turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Hi, this is Jerry Boyer. Welcome to Meeting of Minds podcast. Today, my guest is Janine Yunus from the New Civil Liberties Alliance. She's been litigating an extremely important case um, regarding civil liberties and specifically the ability of the government to pressure companies, particularly social media companies, to take down content which the government doesn't like. Janine, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you for having me. So I think the main case, I know there's more than one case, but the main case has been Missouri v. Biden. Um, first, I, I guess let's establish the points of fact before we go on to the points of law. What exactly happened? So the plaintiffs, well, uh, Missouri and Louisiana, the states brought this case initially, and they were joined by fr- five individual plaintiffs. Uh, the ones that NCLA is representing are uh, doctors Jay Bhattacharya, Martin Kuldorf, and Aaron Cariotti, and uh, Ms. Jill Hines. All of the plaintiffs were censored on social media for expressing views about COVID that are, you know, one would say government disfavored, different, differed from the CDCs, they're critical of lockdowns, mask mandates, the COVID vaccines, the mandates. Um, and so it let, turned let me just, out- let's just stop there for <laughs> one second. That's good. These people, um, I would associate them with the Great Barrington Declaration. That's right. So uh, th- these are people with two of them. Yeah, two of them. Yeah, yeah. Martin. Yeah. They so these would be people who would have a strong academic background, a strong yeah. level of expertise. Um, now, how much we want to censor fringe content might be a different discussion. But this wasn't fringe content. This was dissent from within the intellectual community about some of these policies, much of which eventually got vindicated by the data, but there's a time when it was not the official line. So we're not really, I mean, I think nutters should have free speech too, but these weren't nutters. These were some of the top people in their field who were raising some very legitimate data-based questions. So I just want to clarify that before we proceed. So please take it from there. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Bhattacharya is an epidemiologist at Stanford and uh, Kuldorf is at Harvard. He's on leave right now, but um, is is an epidemiologist at Harvard. And uh, he's considered one of the top vaccine epidemiologists in the world, one of the the most frequently cited. So you're absolutely correct. These weren't like fringe people just saying crazy things on the internet. (laughs) They had very, uh, you know, informed views to say the least. And in retrospect, some of those informed views eventually have been, you know, mainstream to the point where they're the consensus, like the ineffectualness of um, certain kinds of masks, at least the masks that were mostly in use. I mean, it's almost consensus now that, you know, just the, the paper tissue mask that you're touching all the time, you know, didn't help and certainly, you know, not with children. So they were vindicated in many ways. I mean, their 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 dissent is now almost consensus on a lot of these questions. That's right. I mean, I don't think you can point to a single thing they said that was wrong. Uh, I mean, Kuldorf was uh, censored on 
LinkedIn and Twitter for saying things like natural immunity is just as good as the vaccines. Um, Masks provide elderly people with a false sense of security because they're not really working to protect them from the virus, but people might think they are. So they actually should be taking other precautions. You know, uh, lockdowns were going to do more harm than good, which we now know is true, (laughs) more or less. And children are extremely low risk for ill yeah. consequences from COVID and therefore, uh, you know, the, the risk reward uh, ratio between shutting down schools, for example, or masking them, uh, yeah. you know, is really uh, out of balance um, if you're talking about these massive shutdowns. Okay, yeah. so they, they were out there with their dissenting views. Uh, and then what happened? Uh, so we know what happened on the surface. They were in many ways, they were, they were taken down, they were censored in various ways. We didn't know until more recently what was happening kind of behind the scenes. So what was happening behind the scenes? Right. So behind the scenes, it turned out that uh, the U.S. government, especially people in the White House, the Surgeon General's office, uh, CDC, HHS, were, um, you could use different terms, (laughs) pressuring, coercing, or at the very least, in some cases, uh, working with the social media companies, telling them to take this content down. Um, now, I, I'm i being kind of careful with the terms because the White House was exerting a lot of pressure. I would call it coercion. They were saying things like, you know, if you don't take this down, you're going to face consequences. We're going to look at our options. Um, the social media companies have long feared the repeal of Section 230, which protects them from liability for what people say on their platforms. It's re- You couldn't really have social media as it exists now without it, right? Because if the companies could be held responsible for what people say, uh, they would have to exercise editorial discretion. Um, so they, you know, they've really feared government, the government taking away those protections and the, and the federal government was threatening with doing exactly that, uh, using various antitrust laws. So uh, that's coercion. And then CDC was more, it was more of a collaboration uh, where you had the, the CDC flagging stuff, telling the social media companies, these are the kind of posts you should be taking down. Um, so it, it, the sort of um, entwinement of the government differed a little bit, depending on exactly what you're talking about. But it, it, the point is that the government was involved in viewpoint-based censorship, which the First Amendment uh, doesn't allow. Right. So we should probably clarify a little bit. Uh, Section 230, to oversimplify it to this non-lawyer, is basically, are social media companies soapboxes or are they newspapers? Right. Uh, you, can't, you can't sue the soapbox you know, providers necessarily for what people say when they stand on them. But newspapers have, you know, they have responsibility um, and social media companies want to be treated like soapboxes. Right. Um, and, um, of course, the more that they are, they are censorious, the more they are, in, in essence, acting like newspapers and opening themselves up to what is, at least to me, a legitimate conversation about whether they should get 230 exemption. But, but I think Zuckerberg once called this issue, an antitrust, an existential issue for my company, for our company, yeah. which means government was playing around with the threat of something that could shut the lights out, that could end these companies. Absolutely. So, so it's a little bit like, you know, nice business you have there. It'd be a shame mm-hmm. if something were to happen to it. I mean, the government really had power to destroy these companies. So their suggestions aren't going to register just as suggestions. Right. Um, and actually, there was a, there's a congressional investigation into this very issue happening sort of at the same time of the law as the lawsuit. I think the lawsuit sort of brought to light that this was going on and prompted the forming of the subcommittee to look uh, into it. I actually served on the subcommittee for over the summer. So I'm 
familiar with <laughs> uh, that investigation. And through that, uh, uh, we obtained emails from Meta where they were saying things like, you know, we suppressed the lab leak theory because the government pressured us to and we otherwise wouldn't have done it, which is pretty clear proof that, <laughs> you know, the government's coercion and pressure were effective. Yes. And by the way, the lab leak theory is one of those theories that's gone from, you know, fringe to a fair amount of consensus, um, or at least let's say the default position of uh, a lot of uh, observers, uh, including people in, you know, places of high prestige in the press and uh, um, and in, in government. The lab leak theory is a very, very plausible theory. Um, and, and you know, yes, I guess one could call it a conspiracy theory, but that's that's not a refutation, right? I mean, right. right. Ultimately, there are data markers which indicate, you know, that the lab leak theory. Plus, of course, there's just the prima facie evidence that there is a bio lab in Wuhan, and this started in Wuhan. It's a yeah. big country, you know, with a lot of people. That's you know, that's a big coincidence. So that you know, that should have been an open discussion, and it wasn't. There, there was pressure to take the take those down, and the people were kept in the dark on that, and careers were were harmed. Okay, yeah. so you mentioned the um, the hearings. Um, are the hearings the reason we know so much of what was happening in the background? Or are they the main reason? Are there other reasons? Um, at the time this was going on, we didn't know what was going on behind the console, you know, behind the, uh, behind the scenes. We know a lot now. Why do we know so much now? Well, the main reason is because uh, we were awarded discovery in Missouri v. Biden. So the judge awarded what's called preliminary injunction related discovery. So this is a, a preliminary motion where we're start, sort of saying there's an emergency. People's First Amendment rights are being violated. You've got to, you know, we don't have time to go through the full lawsuit. You've got to do something now. Um, and the judge sort of looks at the case preliminarily and makes an assessment. And it's highly unusual for the judge to uh, award discovery at that phase. But here, the judge in the Western District of Louisiana did just that. And so we got access to quite a few um, emails from uh, White House officials, CDC, Surgeon General. We also were able to depose some officials, including Dr. Fauci, which was uh, an interesting one, <laughs> but almost a year ago now. Uh, so we obtained a lot of information from that. And then there have also been various organizations have done FOIA requests, which have sort of buttressed our uh, our discovery. There's another lawsuit, Alex Berenson, who, who you may have heard of, sure. um, brought his own. He got some interesting discovery uh, where he so he was he found emails where um, Twitter employees were talking about a very difficult meeting with the White House where the White House was demanding to know why Berenson hadn't been kicked off the platform. I mean, this is exactly what the First Amendment is designed to prevent the government trying to silence certain people who have views that it doesn't like. And what was Berenson before he was a Twitter? Um... Yes, <laughs> excellent question. Yeah, he was a he was a New York Times journalist, uh, novelist, writer. Uh, now he's more of an independent journalist, and he's been a COVID skeptic. So he's you know skeptical of the claims that COVID is as dangerous for most people as the government was saying, and that uh, lockdowns are a good idea, mask mandates, vaccine mandates. Right. So again, these aren't nutters. Um, these, these are people with, um, you know, pretty, pretty strong resumes. Yeah. Uh, again, I think nutters have free speech rights too, yeah. but, um, you know, uh, in, in many ways they made a mistake by going after the non nutters. They went after highly credible right. people. Um, and, uh, that, you know, apparently that didn't work out. Okay. So why did the judge, um, in Western Louisiana 
give you this emergent, this unusual emergency discovery uh, access. I mean, as you say, that's not the usual procedure. What did he see that caused him to make this unusual decision? I think he saw what we saw, you know, those of us who brought the lawsuit, that, that this was sort of an unprecedented exercise of government power to silence um, political opponents, if you want to phrase it that way, or people who simply disagreed with the administration on its COVID policy. Uh, I, I think he saw that. And th- so there were quite a few statements that um, high up, especially White House officials had made and people in the Surgeon General's office, you know, uh, former press secretary from the White House, Jennifer Saki, was basically bragging about how the White House was in touch with social media companies, telling them what to censor, uh, flagging posts. And that was actually what tipped me off. I brought an earlier lawsuit before Missouri that was similar. Um, and I was like, wait a second, <laughs> if you're doing that, that's a, that's a First Amendment violation. And you're saying that you're doing it openly. <laughs> so that seems to be a problem. So a few people became alarmed and then started to look into the issue. All right. Um, so I believe you got injunctive relief, rather strong injunctive relief, pretty early in the process. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, it actually, so it took over a year from the filing of the lawsuit and preliminary injunction motion. Um, the judge granted the, the, so the lowest court judge, that's the one in Western District of Louisiana, he uh, granted our motion for a pre- preliminary injunction on July 4th, which I like to, was, <laughs> I've never seen a court issue a decision on a federal holiday, so I think he was trying to make a point. <laughs> I, I think I think the point is made. Yeah, so against the administrative state, right? Yeah, because I exactly. think that was one of the complaints in the declaration. Now he, um, oh, he is. Um, oh, I, now I shouldn't have started if I couldn't remember the quote, but um, he is um, swarm a swarm of his officers. I'm sorry, I should probably shouldn't have, but you know, declaration. One of the complaints is that the king used his officers to yeah. harass our. That's it. To harass our people, um, yeah. and if there's if there's a more strong statement against the uh, administrative state than that, I don't know what it is. So that does yeah. seem to be uh, important timing. And I should point out that uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, you have a focus on the issues having to do with the overreach of the administrative state. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So so you're not mainly fighting when government passes a law that you don't like. You're fighting when government does a thing and there isn't a law backing it up. Right, right. So uh, uh, when agencies are sort of exceeding their congressionally delegated authority is a classic example. Uh, this case does involve a lot of agencies as and also the White House, which um, is a little bit unusual. But the, so the judge in the Western District uh, enjoined quite a few agencies and uh, individual officials said that, you know, we had made a preliminary showing that they had violated the plaintiff's First Amendment rights and we were entitled to the relief. Um, and then he called it arguably the most massive attack against free speech in American history, which I, I tend to agree with. If you look at the number of people who were sen- uh, censored and the sort of way that government wielded its power, I don't know that we've ever seen anything like that before. Right. I mean, uh, we had the we had the sedition laws um, very early in the Republic, but um, yeah. and they were egregious, but they didn't affect that many people. Exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, essentially, almost everybody in the in the country was affected by this because almost everybody in the country participates in social media. Uh, right. So this is you. So I understand that in the past, sometimes the government has arrested people who are protesting law, are protesting wars, and that's a violation of the First Amendment. But it's yeah. a fairly focused violation. This was affecting everybody, really. 
That's right. And a lot of people don't know that you also have a First Amendment right to receive information. It's considered sort of a corollary of the First Amendment right to speak. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everybody was deprived of the right to hear the views of Drs. Bhattacharya and Kuldorf. And I, I, uh, you know, am of the opinion that if the public was aware there had been a a lot of debate among very legitimate scientists on this issue, they may not have been so eager to accept lockdowns and vaccine mandates and mask mandates. I think the government was able to create the illusion of a consensus where none actually existed by silencing top scientists through this sort of censorship. Yeah, that's a good point. That um, I We stood still for a lot. We put up with a lot. Um, and I think we probably would have put up with less intrusion into our freedom if we knew that there was actually a debate um, within the scientific community. And so, in essence, what we saw is those scientists who had, or physicians who had proximity to political power um, had shaped policy and debate, and those who did not have proximity to poli- so Dr. Fauci has a lot of proximity right. to political power, so right. his influence out, uh, out essentially outweighed his um, pedigree. That's right. As a scientist, I mean, he he wouldn't be the top person to go for an epidemiological question like this, but yeah. he was the person who's there in the White House shaping policy. That's right. That's absolutely right. But tell me a little bit about deposing Dr. <laughs> Anthony Fauci. What was that like? Uh, it was it was very interesting. Um, we were in there for quite some time. We had seven hours and with breaks that ended up being about 10 hours. Uh, he so I think he said something like, I don't recall about 200 times. I forgot the exact number. Um, he basically claimed not to remember anything, which is very helpful when you're you know lying. Uh, I'm not saying he necessarily was. <laughs> Uh, it's a little harder to be called out. So he would be presented with an email. Do you remember writing this? Um, I, I don't recall, you know, uh, he claimed not to have had any contact with social media companies. It turns out his daughter actually works at Twitter. So I'm, I'm a bit suspicious. (laughs) So that didn't come up during Thanksgiving dinner. Um, yeah. (laughs) Uh, well, I mean, you know, long brain fog is a long COVID yeah. So maybe uh, maybe that's what was going on. And maybe right. maybe that should cause the rest of us to just for, forget it all. Um, all right. So um, you, we, you, you got the injunction, um, yeah. which basically was wide ranging. The judge said no, almost no one in the administration should talk to anyone in social media. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. And the judge, you know, I read his his um, injunctive his, his statement is his finding a ruling. I forget what, it, what yeah. how you call it. It was pretty outraged. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah. So it didn't stop there. Right. No, it, it kept going. Yeah. So the government appealed to the uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the, um, the appellate court where uh, you know, you would appeal from a Louisiana, Western District of Louisiana. That's and a, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty good uh, venue for you, isn't it? Yes. You say? Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah you, if, you, if you had your choice, you'd want to be in the Fifth Circuit. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like, as opposed to the Ninth or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the, the, so they, it's, this has a little bit of a complicated now um, history, but initially they, upheld parts of the district court's injunction and struck down others, they sort of narrowed it and they focused on coercion and what they called significant encouragement. So they were looking at exactly the nature of the conduct uh, on the government's part. So they were saying the sort of what I uh, maybe described as entwinement or joint participation 
where the companies sort of appeared to be working voluntarily with the government, that that was okay. You know, and the CDC and uh, the social media companies were sitting down having meetings and the CDC was telling them which posts to take down. That was okay because it looked voluntary. The problem was what they called coercion and significant encouragement. And it was a little fuzzy what exactly they meant by significant encouragement. I think it's something like pressure. Uh, and so they they excised a couple of the agencies, like the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which is a sub-agency of DHS, from the injunction. They said, no, nah, that stuff was that stuff was more like collaborative, working together. That's not uh, that's not part of this. And now, then we asked them to reconsider. <laughs> And after a few weeks, they did reconsider and they went back and included CISA, the cybersecurity agency. Um, it's a little bit complicated, but the inclusion of them was not so much based on a reassessment of the legal standard, which I think the Supreme Court needs to look at, because I don't think that the companies and the government should be able to work together, even if the companies are doing it completely voluntarily. That's, you know, this this. I draw a lot of analogies to the Fourth Amendment, where which says the government can't search your home without um, a warrant, probable basically. Cause, yeah, yeah, probable cause, a warrant. Uh, well, the government also can't hire a private company to go into your house and search it without a warrant. Hmm. Uh, that would be ridiculous. That would render the Fourth Amendment essentially obsolete. They could just outsource everything to private industry. And I think the same thing should apply in the First Amendment context. Well, and isn't this what happened? The government outsourced the censorship function to social media companies. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, 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 so it's a very new question because we just haven't really seen anything like it before social media. And I think that's why the courts are a little bit, they're trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. Well, and one thing I know there's your findings of fact and findings of law. So I, I, I suppose you, you didn't get the reconsideration based mainly on law, but yeah. on fact, but in terms of the finding of fact, if one branch of the administration says to Facebook, there will be consequences, and then another branch of the administration says to Facebook, this is what we should we think you should take down, but doesn't say there will be consequences, well, over there at Facebook, they talk to each other. Right. And, and they know that the administration can shut them down anytime they want. So I don't see how there once once the government at a high level, once someone from the White House has made that threat, it seems to me that that poisons all other communication going forward. It's all coercive, um, even even the, not like not every demand from Tony Soprano has a threat associated with it. Yeah, all, he only has to do it once. You know, um, right. now I'm not saying that Biden is Tony Soprano. Um well, but I don't know. I mean, in some case, government is worse, right? Because it has yeah. so much more power, yeah. right? Um, so any threat made by government, um, I think, probably bleeds over into anything else that they request in any other context. So where are things right now with this? So <laughs> it is, uh, it's very complicated procedurally. Right now, it's in the Supreme Court. So the government has filed a stay. They're basically asking the court to uh, stop the ruling from taking effect pending um, a cert application. So that's when th- the government essentially wants the Supreme Court to hear the case. And they're saying, in the meantime, while we write the briefs, please stay this. So uh, the cert, writ of certiorari is basically this. It's you. It's about whether the Supreme Court will hear the case, right? That's what exactly. The cert is, right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there have been a couple of procedural hiccups along the way. I won't bore everyone with it was because the Fifth Circuit stuff was going on at the same time. So um 
they have uh, the Supreme Court has to just there's an administrative stay in effect right now. So the Fifth Circuit stopped its own decision from taking effect and said, like, we're, I think it was 20 days uh, for the Supreme Court to weigh in. So the Supreme Court extended that another week and it's set to expire on Friday. So I expect we will hear something from the Supreme Court on Friday. Uh, I have said that about four times, <laughs> given these procedural hiccups. So I uh, I don't want to swear by that. Okay. So I just learned we need to publish this very quickly um, <laughs> because and, and in scheduling this, we there was a schedule and then a reschedule and a reschedule yeah. because things kept. There was always about to be another change, so it's like yeah. we were always yeah. in danger of this being of this interview this is, being obsolete. Um, this has been going on since about the beginning of September now. That so. They could do something very boring, like just extend the administrative stay again. And the media, especially sort of more left wing publications like The New York Times, you know, they love to say, oh, the Supreme Court has granted the government's motion for a stay. This uh, this shows that it, it believes the government's arguments. It's an administrative stay, which is very different. It has nothing to do with the merits. It's sort of a courtesy courts tend to extend, especially to the government, to maintain the status quo when there's a big issue in question. So they're saying, we haven't looked at this. We'll just do the government this courtesy. And so it means nothing. So what would that mean in terms of policy? I I assume that what would be in effect is the vast majority of agencies will not be allowed to talk to social media companies about what to to take down until the Supreme Court resolves this. Is that what's Uh, in effect now? Well, no, because the stay is staying the Fifth Circuit's decision. So it's like stopping that decision from taking effect. I so, see. Now, although the Biden administration has claimed to media that they are not just out of an abundance of caution, they're not talking to social media companies. I'm not sure I buy that, but uh, they're saying they're not. Well, the violation occurs whether they are actively doing it or whether they can do it. I mean, yeah, right? The, the, the state of law has to be that they're not allowed to do it. Otherwise, we're not protected. So, that's I mean, if, if if government gives itself the right to censor and it censors 10 o'clock in the morning and then it censors 6 o'clock in the evening, that right. doesn't mean we're free from 10.01 till 5.59. Right, right. Um, you know, so, you know, just because they're not actively censoring doesn't mean that we're – Things are where they should be. Okay, so I think we've got the uh, the lay of the land here. Um, anything else you think we ought to know on this? Uh, we, you know, until Friday, you know, we're, we're, <laughs> things could change dramatically. Anything else you think that our listeners should know about this issue? Um, I think we covered most of it. I guess I would just um, one of the messages I like to get across is you've made this point a couple of times. You know, these were. Our, our plaintiffs are, you know, very qualified scientists who are being censored on the area of their expertise. And I think it sort of shows why we have a First Amendment. Uh, and it shows why we protect um, the less true things like the the microchip claims. or the Because once you get the government in the business of deciding who gets to be heard and who should be silenced, I think then you're in trouble. Um, you don't really want the government drawing those lines. So let everybody speak, and the marketplace of ideas tends to sort out the truth, I think. I, th- I think that we've learned from experience that the idea that you can censor the fringe groups, the hate groups, yeah. um, which has an initial appeal, what I've seen in other situations, well, for instance, with the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and a bunch of mainstream organizations, that you can find somebody who will call anybody else a hate group. That's right. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, 
initially, if somebody wants to censor the Nazis, it's like, yeah, censor, censor the Nazis, right? But the problem is, at some point, you know, mainstream... You know, Reaganites get called Nazis, right? And, yeah. and and then the social media company with their kind of insulated, you know, uh, sort of valley mentality, everybody to the right of Barack Obama is, you know, a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, and so all, all we're doing is censoring hate groups, you yeah. know, but everybody's a hate group who's not center left or hard left. Um, and so I, I'm no, I can no longer get suckered by the, Let's just deal with the extreme cases argument, because what they've gotten very good at is essentially making everybody they disagree with appear to be an extremist. So, I'll, you know, I, when I read the nutters on there, oh, there's, you know, Satan microchips in your vaccine. It's like, Ugh. but yeah. you know what? All right. You know, the nutters are there. And then I can tweet back and say. You're an idiot. <laughs> you don't know exactly. what you're talking about. There's no microchip small enough. This is complete nonsense. Your source, you know, um, that's the way to deal with them anyway. Because one of the things I've learned is when you censor them, they go from nutter to martyr. Yeah, exactly. That's and now right. they're more powerful. Look, they're afraid of me because I speak the truth. Um, sure, and it's like, sure. no, they censored you because you were easy, easy to censor. Um, but they turn into martyrs, and they, in some sense, they have more strength. So you know, let a th- thousand flowers bloom, even the even the crazy flowers. That's right. I mean, that's exactly what the framers of the Constitution understood. You know, if you if you um, silence bad ideas, it doesn't mean they go away. It, t- it tends to mean that people just turn underground. So you kick them off Twitter, they go to Gab or Getter, and Gab they- or Getter or what's the <laughs> It's te- Telegram or Telegram, yeah. right? They're out there on Telegram and right, and, yeah, and nobody and can censor them, and people yeah, feel like they're finally getting the true story, right? Exactly, and they're they're just in an echo chamber instead of on a more mainstream site like Twitter or Facebook, encountering opposition to their views. So it's just it's simply not the way to deal with bad ideas. Yeah, I, I one one other thing that I would add personally is I don't mainly deal with the legal side; I mainly deal with the corporations directly as a proxy. Uh, as a person who does a lot of consulting on, on proxy um, voting, um, these corporations were a pretty easy sell in many ways um, in that they uh, I'm, I'm not sure how much coercion was necessary. Yeah. Um, so this is an opportunity for them. They were able to hide behind that. Yeah. Um, so now Facebook, Meta, whatever, Alphabet, uh, all the rest of them. Now it's their job to use the freedom that the court appears to be or is likely to grant to them, um, which means that they now they now can't blame the government. They can't blame Big Brother. Yeah. Oh, we'd like to we'd like to put everything up there, but we can't. They yeah. need to have the they need to exercise the responsibility of um, controlling their own censorious impulses. Yeah. Um, you know, when the government is not forcing them into it. And that's yeah. a challenge they have to face, because, frankly, a lot of people inside there do want to do a lot of takedown stuff and the government just gave them an excuse for what they want to do. Yeah, that's fair enough. They, 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 they if they want to, they, they went out there when they started, we're going to be free speech platforms. Oh, government okay. won't let us be free speech platforms. Yeah. Okay. When the Supreme court comes down and basically you're not going to, you're not going to lose at all at the Supreme court, in my opinion. Now you're not allowed to say, cause to say so, because that sounds like grandstanding, but I don't see any way that you come out of this without serious progress being made in paring back the administrative state, um, which means then social media companies now are free to do the right thing, which is allowing people to speak. So that's my yeah. own little soapbox on that. 
yeah. And we're not at 2.30, uh, mm-hmm. so uh, um, so this actually is a soapbox. All right, Janine <laughs> Yunus from uh, New Civil Liberties Alliance, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I'm Jerry Boyer. You've been listening to Meeting of Minds podcast.